Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor at Billboard and Broadway fan here. So when I think about times in the past when I wish I had lived in New York City, I always immediately think of the late 1970s. Uh, plenty of things in the city weren't so great back then. Maybe it wasn't as, as safe as it is now. But the music scene was definitely amazing. And that was thanks in part to two venues that have since gone down in rock history. Studio 54 was opened in Midtown Manhattan by the nightlife impresarios Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager in 1977. And with uh, the sort of glamorous theatrical interior that it had, it became a celebrity magnet until it was closed in 1980 when Rubell and Schrager were convicted of tax evasion. The trajectory of the club kind of mirrored the rise of and fall of disco. And at its height, it attracted a who's who of music at the time, including Mick Jagger, Diana Ross, Grace Jones, Freddie Mercury, David Bowie, and many, many more stars. At around the same time, roughly 1978 to 1983, downtown, the Mud Club was catering to a more experimental, punk-leaning scene. The artists who performed there included Lou Reed, Talking Heads, and the B-52s. Considering how much interest there's been lately in the musical theater world in uh, kind of showing rock and pop history and music on stage, I've seen surprisingly little material working with this time period in particular. So I was intrigued when I heard about a new musical premiering off-Broadway called This Ain't No Disco. I knew it would be covering the Studio 54 Mud Club era, but what was even more exciting to me is that the music and lyrics were co-written by Stephen Trask and Peter Janowitz. Trask wrote the music and lyrics for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the cult-turned kind of classic rock musical, and Peter was the original drummer for The Wallflowers, and he played on Natalie Merchant's amazing first three albums, and he actually also performed in the recent excellent Hedwig Broadway production a few years back uh, that Neil Patrick Harris was in uh, as a member of the Angry Inch, the band on stage. So Trask and Janowitz call their show a rock opera, uh, but I recently saw it. It's not exactly the Who's Tommy or what I would traditionally think of as a rock opera. It is practically totally sung through, but it has this kind of unorthodox, meandering narrative, lots of different characters it follows, and it goes into a variety of sounds from the era and beyond throughout the show. Uh, we talked about all that and what inspired them uh, to make a musical about this moment in New York history, along with the stars of the show, Peter LaPrade and Samantha Marie Ware, on this week's episode. Shook his face in my face, 
like the most rock and roll crowd I've had on the podcast, which is very exciting. Um, perhaps the most billboard appropriate billboard on Broadway podcast ever. Um, who are all you people I'm looking at? All right. So I'm Stephen Trask and I am one of the authors, uh, music lyrics book of uh, This Ain't No Disco. And I play keyboards and guitar in the band. Ooh, I couldn't even see you. No, you can't see us. I knew you were there. I saw like some little glints of guitars, but you're, you're well hidden. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Peter Janowitz. I am also one of the authors of the show uh, with Steven, and I played drums in the show. Amazing. I'm Peter Laprod, and uh, I'm an actor in the show. I play Chad. I am Samantha Marie Ware. I am also an actor in This Ain't No Disco, the musical. <laughs> um, and I play Sammy. All right. Well, I have to say, Peter and Samantha, I... I've become like fascinated by whether people are wearing wigs on stage or not, and I'm amazed to see in person that you both have the amazing hair that yes. you have in the show. This is our yeah. hair. <laughs> you this both have it. luxurious locks yes. on stage and yes. in person as well. Yeah. Um, well, I I saw the show a week ago and loved it, and feels very very different and amazing performers, and um, been a fan of Stevens for a long time, mm. and a fan of other Peter's uh, previous work as well, uh, which maybe you can tell us a little bit about. Um, so, and wishing I had seen you in Hamilton, uh, <laughs> Sam, so uh, excited to have you all here. So um, the first thing I wanna ask, like starts with the title of the show, This Ain't No Disco, which I know is Talking Heads reference, but the show for most, much of it takes place in a disco. So <laughs> I wanted to ask like, what, why was this the, the title that you, uh, settled upon for the show, and is it meant to sort of convey anything about what the show is about? Uh, you, you know, actually, the, the, in, in part of the song, so this ain't no disco, this ain't, uh, this, ain't, uh, this ain't no fooling around, this ain't no mud club, mm -hmm. no CBGBs, and we spend time in the mud club, too. As well, yes. <laughs> and inside and outside these clubs. But for us, and, and actually, in that song itself, uh, um, the, the, the person is that person is a revolutionary, right? Living, I don't know, I imagine in like Greenpoint Cemetery or something, but I'm not really sure where, <laughs> or Fort Green Park. But but it's it's about life being a little bit more serious than what goes on in nightclubs. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that some in some ways that's the, like our people find each other in the nightclubs and the nightclubs are really important for that, but, but, but how they find each other and what they do once they do find each other is, is more important to us. And also, it, it, there's, it, there is a tension when you have a character of Steve Rubell and, and you're in Studio 54 and you say, this ain't no disco. You're like, oh, okay, then what is it? You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it there's an immediate tension between the name and the expectation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, I, I'm interested that it's a, sort of subtitled as being a rock opera because I think of rock operas as feeling very stylized and very grandiose often. And I think one of the things that stood out to me about the show is like, it doesn't have a traditional, very like clear cut narrative structure. It feels sort of naturalistic. Like you feel more like you're seeing sort of vignettes of people's lives and how they cross over together. So like, did you see it as kind of like furthering what a rock, rock opera can be in a way? Or like, why did you think of it in that way? 
Yeah, we were interested in writing a, a different kind of show that, that we had ever seen before. And um, the idea of a, like a long poem or extended piece of music that that can have interweaving narratives, much like a, you know, an Altman film or a Mike Lee film, just with different characters coming in and out. And um, yeah, you know, in, 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 in film, they call it networked narratives where, where, where the, the, the cum- it's the accumulation of all the different story arcs that tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And that was one of our things and, and having it feel like a long poem, like one long piece of music. Um, and it is, and you know, one of the things that, that we, tried to really hold on to uh, um, is is not over telling the stories with with these like with these like endless I don't know endless narrative and li- to set to lyric that just makes you want to put a gun to your head um, <laughs> you know you do it as, as much as you need to but people go to the opera I mean I, I remember f- like I've seen opera before and I've never seen it in English mm. and and I'm st- I still cry you know, like, like I'm still like I'm incredibly moved and, 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 and it just never stops. The thing never stops moving and people ball and they don't know what, what anyone's saying. So, you know, somehow to, to, to get people on that wave of emotion is really the point. Mm-hmm. How do you two feel about that being like sort of in the middle of it? <laughs> being in the middle of a rock of the opera? show, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun. Like I've, I've always, I mean, I'm an eccentric like... <laughs> beautiful black woman but I was like born and, <laughs> born yes, and raised in like in Nebraska um with like a stepfather who like listened to like anything from here to like from Ice Cube to like Pink Floyd so like mm-hmm. I get to like you know in this show because I also do spoken words so I get to experiment with you know a little bit of like almost like hip-hop and then dive into that kind of world so it's a lot of fun for me and it's different from anything I've ever seen on stage or anything I've ever played so yeah it's definitely unlike anything else I've ever done uh, a show being entirely sung through is um, hard, hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's hard and it's not, it's not even something that you really think to prepare yourself for until you're you know you're doing it and you're like wow you're just singing non-stop for like two and a half hours <laughs> or whatever however long yeah. we're, we're running now th- these days but um yeah, the music is what I think makes it okay. You know, the music is good enough that you can listen to it for two and a half hours, you know? It's not the kind of music where, like, people are just singing about aimless tasks, like you were saying. Like, it's not just notes set to menial, banal sentences. It's, you know, the lyrics are poetry. It's telling a story or it's conveying some kind of inner truth about somebody. Yeah, so... um it's hard physically, but it's not hard mentally. It makes sense as one big piece of music. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say, I, I was at, uh, after the show, I went for drinks with, with Darko Trezniak and, 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 and my parents Darko's and a lot of, Darko's he's our director, director and yeah. a lot of my parents and a lot of my relatives and friends of my parents from when they went to high school. Um, and earlier. And he was talking about how difficult it is this piece is technically. Mm-hmm. He said there are. He said it's the most difficult technical piece he's done. There are over two thousand lighting cues called during the course of the show. Whoa! <laughs> <Madonna>. <laughs> I was just like, wow. I mean, it's really just we. It's we're kind of pushing the limits of what you can do off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Really, 
it's it's we're, 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 we're like we're too big we're, we're too big for the space there's like 2,000 cues we just it's just it's it's insane it's a loud show and a little in yeah. a little room yeah, yeah but I was gonna say that I mean to all of your credit it doesn't come across as like tortured or like overly complicated in any way Thank it you. certainly doesn't read that way to an audience I mean this actually plays into what I was gonna say which is that I think that one of the uh, challenges of a show that deals that kind of takes this unorthodox form and deals with this particular era is that I think of so much of the music of the 70s and 80s as kind of maybe not disco in particular is kind of being about this like ineffable coolness sort of and <laughs> um, sort of the 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 challenge of putting that on stage in a the, in a theatrical context and not making it feel like theater. Right. Um, it seems like it would be something like that you all have to kind of grapple with and figure out. Ineffable coolness is a really good phrase. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Should we just stop? Yeah. Not before I put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> I don't I don't know how I can go on after that. Um well Stephen, I want to start just rewinding with you a little bit because, if I'm correct, this is your first big musical project post Hedwig, correct? Musical to, theater. To, to actually get to the stage, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was curious, you know, if if you anticipated how huge Hedwig would kind of become for you, did you plan to do musical theater beyond that? And why did this eventually become that next project for you? Um. Well, in some ways it became the next project because other projects died in the vine. So, um, you know, um, one of one of which I was writing with Peter um, Yanowitz. Uh, um, and um, this one, you know, when, when so this started off as a book musical and it was much more traditional. Mm-hmm. And and when we took it over, made it and wanted to make it into a sung through just one long poem piece of music. It became very personal to us, and that which I don't by which I don't mean we we're telling our stories, but but uh, but it became really important, and I think I think the, the the degree to which it touched our souls was was so strong that we could not let it go, we could not keep pushing it through, um, and and we were sort of challenged. I think we broke every rule we could possibly do we could possibly break and we were just having fun doing that, you know, like, okay, let's make it sung through. And then we got to the phone call scene with Ian Schrager and uh, cause we don't have Ian Schrager. So we have him out, out of town <laughs> and uh, out of the country on vacation. And so we had a phone call and we were like, I don't want to hear somebody sing a phone call. That's just awful. So we're like, all right, well let's di- write a dialogue scene. And so that became the first rule. Okay. No phone, no sung phone calls. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but like, sung through it never stops it's not about a story that anybody knows it's going to be a networked narrative without with leads but also all these every we tried to break every single rule we could which is just endless fun Mm -hmm. so but i mean in terms of the inspiration for like this has to be a musical was it was it that you felt this sort of era's music was it represented in theater or like why did it, you, you know, it's, the it, it, is one, it is one of those weird moments where, where, where people think, people think seventies and it immediately there's like a kitsch factor mm-hmm. when you, when you think seventies. Right. And, and, and people think of disco and they think cheese. Right. And they, and, and, and they look at, and, and, you know what? It wasn't, people went against disco cause it was the music of black people and gay people. So, 
that's that. Mm. And 79 <laughs> and, um, and 1979 <laughs> was probably like peak music year. You know, 1979 was was when Nile Rodgers put a stamp on disco. 1979 was when the B-52s came out. 1979 mm-hmm. was when the Clash peaked, and when and when and when Blondie peaked. In 1979, you know, it was like you just go, go down the list. That's when Michael Jackson put out "Off the Wall." 1979 is when Prince put out his first, you know, album with a hit. Like, you know, like this was like a big, big, big year mm-hmm. in music, and and it was the year before. All the recording technology changed in the re- in the recording studio, so it was the last year where people were working with equipment that they'd been perfecting since like the '30s. Recording equipment they'd been just getting better at and be- getting, and then by the next year, all the stuff was starting to be different in the studio. So everything sound. If you go back and listen to music of 1979, it sounds really good, and everyone is just at the top. The everything mm-hmm. is at the top of its game. It's not kitschy and it's not goofy. It's awesome. That's a very good point. I have to interject, actually, that um, everyone listening and also you all here should uh, check out the Billboard Pride issue that we just put out because we had a great uh, reported story about the origins of modern dance music in uh, the specifically black gay men of the 70s dance scene, um, which is super interesting and uh, and a really good piece about the B-52s as well. <laughs> who, who, who are credited with teaching... When they first played it, performed at the Mud Club, mm-hmm. and they got people to dance, and they were credited with teaching the hipsters to dance. Yes. That, it was, that it was cool to dance. Yes, at yes. Mud Club. That's what's so great about them. Um, so, when did you all's collaboration start? How long have you worked together? And Peter, did you always want to work in the world of musical theater after um, having no. a lot of rock cred? <laughs> you know, I met Stephen about twelve years ago at a writing retreat in the middle in the middle of Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> It was yeah, randomly. I you know I'm a writer from the rock and roll world, and I went to this retreat and. Uh, you can say who it was. Yeah, is it the come wait? On. Is it the story? Is it, I know what it is. Is it the one that Hansen wrote? Yes. Yeah. How do you know about Hansen? I mean, oh well. Anyway, uh, yeah, it, I've I've sort of at my previous job at New York Magazine, I sort of became in-house Hansen historian. Yeah, <laughs> I've interviewed them many times. Yeah, we love them. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. They they randomly invited both of us to one of their their retreats at their compound in Oklahoma, and we flew out there. And we're not Mormon. That's the, one of the first things they say. We're not Mormon. Yeah. And we we got put in a room together on the last day. It's a sort of situation where you get paired up with people, and mm-hmm. and we met and connected, and then finally the last day of the retreat, they put us together because we asked to be put together, and we just started a conversation musically together that day that I think we've continued on for 12 years where we're finishing each other's sentences, putting melodies and words in each other's heads, heads and just just sort of breaking any rule songwriting-wise where we, where we, we just started a conversation, which I think is really what writing for theater is about, is one long conversation because it's hours and hours and hours and hours of talking and then the writing is very a very little part of that. But when I got home from that re- that retreat, uh, Stephen called me and asked me if I would, had ever thought about writing for the theater, and I lied and said, yeah. But even though, you know, you even were though, lying? Well, my mom is from Queens. My Can mom I is from Queens. for one second just say something? Because I was working on two shows, and I knew I needed a co-writer on one, and, and one of them I, I wanted to have a kind of Prince influence, and Wendy and Lisa said they would be my co-writers, and I ditched them for you. Well, there you go. So. Sorry, Wendy and Lisa. So, there um, you go. <laughs> anyway, they... Uh, 
Yeah, basically, I'd grown up going to theater because my mom was sort of like a Broadway baby from Queens, and she she's always brought me to theater. And, and when she comes to town, I see pretty much 10 shows in a week. And, and I've always been a fan, but coming more from rock and roll, I, I never really thought about writing. But when Steven asked me, I, I always like trying to run into things that sort of scare the shit out of me. And, and that was one thing that was like, God, I've never thought about this. And it seems really scary, but yeah, why not? And, mm-hmm. and I loved Steven from the get go. So, so it was a pretty easy decision. Um, especially cause I was a fan of his work as well. So it was pretty exciting. So I just want to like say that Hanson is secretly responsible for everything that exactly. we're talking yeah. about, which is amazing. I, by the way, met Hanson cause they, they came to see Hedwig at, Sundance and they were like it was their first trip without their parents and their handlers were all gay men and and we <laughs> met hanging out at a at a private pool sauna hot tub party at Gus Van Zant's <laughs> place Jesus that's it. so, just, that, so, that, was, that sounds got better alright <laughs> so I just, just want to just want to throw that in thank god <laughs> that's amazing Am I right that the two of you are like a little too young to have like been to Mud Club? Yeah, yeah. I'm 50, Steven's 51. We we just missed that scene. I didn't get to New York until like the mid to late 80s and 90s. Uh no, I mean I I was on the East Coast. Yeah. Anyway, um and sorry, you threw me off. I'm but, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. But you said we were finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. But, <laughs> This is like the odd couple. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, you know, the show in general is such a love letter to New York. You know, I, I came to New York over 25, like 25 years ago to live. And once I got here, I was just like, I mean, I grew up in Utah, you know, Jewish, surrounded by so many people that were different than me. And I once I got to New York, I just was like, I fell in love immediately. And I knew that I would never leave. And, and in a way, this show became like a a way of like loving New York, especially the show takes place in 1979, which we've talked about, but it, it's a way of trying to get close to that, that time that we couldn't really be a part of, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you, yeah, I mean, and, you know, some of these people who were well, part of the scene, I think. Well, I, 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 you know, I also, I, I, I started, hang, I started coming to New York, I guess as a kid, we'd, we'd come and then high school and college came a lot because uh, uh, it was a short drive from Wesleyan, and, which is in Connecticut, um, and then and then started. My first club was Pyramid, um, and I worked at at this club Squeeze Box, where we started, uh, where 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 we started Hedwig, and that's still like a family. And I so I know what that feeling is of a nightclub being a place where where like minded. And it was in fact the whole point of Squeeze Box was that there was no place for like queer people who liked rock and punk to go out like mm-hmm. and actually enjoy the night because it was all disco music and so um and so it was like punk rock and and alt rock and you but you'd also like hear motown songs and whatever and we and 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 it was a drag queen performing with live bands and and it just became an instant scene very much actually like studio 54 but smaller and not as you know, snazzy, like a John Waters <laughs> version of Studio 54. And so I, I, and I'm still friends with, with like all of those people. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, what was the question? Oh, I did have, you know, I had one encounter. I will say this. I had one encounter with Steve Rubell that I didn't even realize was him until, until 
we were researching this and I found out that he ran the Michael Todd room, but I promoted a film event for the opening of Nightmare on Elm Street four or three or something at Michael Todd room. And everyone's like, you're this guy you're meeting. He's a very important club owner, which was a concept I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> important club owner. What is that? And, um, and we interacted a little bit and they're like, was it exciting to meet him? It's like, I don't know who he is. <laughs> and then at the end of the night, as we we're getting ready to leave, um, he said, he asked me if I could run a favor, do a favor for him. And he handed me a brown paper bag of cocaine <laughs> and said, can you go bring this to Robert England's dressing room? Robert England play, played Freddy Krueger. And so my one, my one experience with Steve Rubell was running cocaine to a movie star. Uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good life story. <laughs> and then he, and I, I didn't even realize it was him until like last year. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> He ran the Michael, T oh my God, that was him who handed me that cocaine? <laughs> That's amazing. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you two, who um, definitely were too young to have uh, experienced this, um, what did you kind of know of the music of this era? Were you fans? Did you have to kind of go through 1979 immersion period before getting into this? Um, I grew up listening to the music that my parents listened to, and uh, they were also um, a little bit too young to have been there, but, uh, you know, the music of the 70s, particularly, um, like, rock and roll of the 70s, was always in my house, and um, and so was, so was disco, honestly. You know, when I started doing, like, research about the show and the time period and like making sure I knew every, you know, reference in the script that was something historical that I wouldn't have been alive for. Um, I started listening to a lot of music from the time period and, um, you know, you just know these disco songs. Everybody just knows them. I don't know how, but I was like listening to the Apple music, like disco essentials. And I was like, why do I know every single one of these songs? <laughs> but they're just like part of our culture now. Um, and, Stephen and I had talked actually previously about this the stigma around like disco music and why that came to be and I don't know I never really I never had that I just like music if it's fun if it makes me think about something if it makes me feel something then I like it I've never I've never had like a specific genre that I stuck to so the music of this time period was definitely already in me I think I think it's just me as like I've I'd seen like visuals and like pictures and things of like you know the iconic like Diana Ross at the at the DJ booth with someone holding onto her ankles like for the last party right yeah um, and also because I had like a slight obsession with Grace Jones for a little bit after someone showed me like a David Letterman interview where she shows up like 20 minutes late into the interview and is like I had to eat and I was like I have to know who this Steve is <laughs> yes. of course like most of the pictures that are online of her like at like Studio 54 with just like titties out and just like carefree <laughs> which is what I aspire to be all the time as Peter knows <laughs> so we share a dressing room kind of kind of <laughs> Well, yeah. I have to say, 
I like music, any kind of music, and I got the music in me were two hits in the 70s. Like, it's a <gasps> 70s oh ethos. God. Wow. It's the ineffable coolness. Yes, or ineffable. Yeah, well, I was, I, I see a lot of different influence possibly in each of your characters. I, I don't see either of them being a, st- a stand in for one person, but like watching you, Peter, I even get, I get like a little Claude from hair and a little bit yes. of like Pippin a little bit too. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, you mentioned Grace Jones uh, yeah. a bit and like maybe a little Joan arbitrating and like, uh, um, so I was curious kind of like who, if anyone you're kind of drawing on for inspiration and uh, in conceptualizing the two of them, if you were thinking of anyone uh, in particular. Recently I've been, I don't know, I've been, uh, Lenny Kravitz, this, for the like, the list the week has been my poll, just because like Questlove posted like this huge like bio about, I don't know if you saw that. Um, and so then I like, of course, like dove, in, dove into that world and was like, oh yeah, you know, let me tap into that. But I mean, it, I guess it changes for me at least because there's so many, but. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. I, um, I don't think I think about it consciously. I mean, I, I could sit here and like think of examples of people that I guess I, I, I maybe like take energy from or inspiration from in that way, but I don't. It's not like a conscious decision. I think really, again, it just goes back to the music. Like I, I have a lot of different songs in the show that have a different feel to them, a different, a totally different genre, you know, from one number to the next. And I think, you know, you just kind of have to be truthful to whatever that moment is. The thing about the character that I'm playing is that he and I are similar in a lot of ways. So a lot of it is just for me, trying to be honest to the story, you know? And then if you're really doing that, the energy of the music or the song will will come, you know? And it will, yeah, it will reveal itself. And, and that might look like, you know, uh, something from Hair, or it may have like a Mick Jagger energy to it, or it may have like a softer, like Simon and Garfunkel energy to it. It just, you know, it's all just about being honest to moment to moment. And so much of what both of your characters are about to me too is that they're like trying on different styles and kind of for sure trying to find what's authentic to them. So hearing them sing in these different ways kind of makes sense. Searching in this like, show. Like, <laughs> the, the character that Peter plays is 20. So like I have to think like like when I was 20 like how, like how much how many things did I try and how many stupid identities did I go through before <laughs> yes. I was like, you know, how much, how many times did I make a fool of myself in public? Like, uh, you know, and then finally, you know, fi- figure out where I was going. Like, mm. and, 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 and Sam's character is 22. These are, these are really young people. With a child. With a child. Mm-hmm. A cute You got a lot going on. Yes. <laughs> That's not a spoiler. It's revealed very early in the show. Yeah. Before, before anything really happens almost. Yes. Yeah. She has a lot going on. It's true. I actually think since you saw it, uh, um, the child is the first thing you see in the show. Oh, yes. It's true with the disco ball. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was there. Uh, I yeah. would like to point out, too, uh, that this doesn't necessarily answer that question, but we were lucky enough to meet Peter right at the very last like audition, basically, to, for Chad. But Samantha has helped us develop the show over several workshops and 
and ingrained herself in our minds so much that she actually shaped the character and the direction that we wanted to take her in musically and emotionally. We we saw a lot of that. Not that Samantha is Sammy, but we just saw the the potential for such an extraordinary the character's already named ca- Sammy. Yeah, that <laughs> wasn't that wasn't the character was already named Sammy, and then Samantha came in and just kind of blew us away at a workshop, and we we're like, whatever we do, you're doing it with us because you, you know you're incredible. Yeah, yeah, you know, I just realized about you, you're you're kind of getting to be on like a tour of the decades of pop music in your work lately because you, I mean, coming out of Hamilton and more of a hip hop moment and now having this like 70s and 80s moment and I saw you're going to be in Girl from the North Country as well. So you'll have like your rewind a little to the Dylan moment. (laughs) That's pretty exciting. That's cool. Um, Well, I I did want to talk about the music a bit because there, there were some songs that felt like they were very much supposed to be in a certain kind of... 70s or like a disco idiom or a sort of like mud clubbish idiom and then there are other songs that just sound straight ahead like a Stephen Trask song to me and sort of not like tied to any um decades particular style um the song that Andy Warhol who's not Andy Warhol sings the artist, uh, the artist yes <laughs> um uh well, we, we co-write every single me. song yeah so I was um I was curious as you were kind of going through the show like how did you kind of navigate those stylistic differences? What was appropriate for each moment? Um, you know, like, so the, so the opening song, the opening song, and, and a friend of my parents picked this up. She, she was like, that's like a hymn. Am I wrong? Is that a hymn? And I was like, no, it's specifically a hymn. Like we got, we, we got the, we, the, the song is called The Dance Floor is Waiting. Mm-hmm. And it's about the anticipation of going to this place that you can only imagine where, the common people and the famous people are all together and there's angels and different levels of cherubs and angels and the, and then the lord and and it's this fantasy place and 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 we took and, and and peter had this book of hymns and he found this this one called a heaven is waiting and it described this vision of heaven um and and it was and the one of the switches that we did was it says that that um, nighttime never falls in heaven, but we switched it to day to daylight day never comes over there no, day never day never falls over there. But it's all but the ethos of like famous people and 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 the common and ascendant is what we say. Um, but we we adapted that language and that hymn to become a dance floor's waiting, and then wrote it in a kind of Benjamin Britten style, and then. Per- Produced it like it was a mirror wide track for Madonna. Um, so, so everything is like super high concept like that. And of course, you have to, when you get to the dance floor at Studio 54, which takes a long time to get there, you, you have to have a disco number. And it has to be a disco number that's not like, you know, it has to be a big disco production number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, and, and then other things, you know, you just kind of feel what does this moment call for? This moment calls for. This moment calls for some punk rock, and 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 um, you know when you start you start going for XTC, and you end up Thomas Dolby working with Joan Armatrading, and and he's like, well, okay, that's cool. That's like uh, that's exactly that moment, and uh-huh. and um, so you don't you don't like land on it exactly necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, were, were we specific about our style? Yeah, we we didn't want to be too on the nose about anything, and. I think we did have some rules, but those ru- those rules basically, you know, involved what our tastes were and what what we could, you know, digest and want to listen to ourselves. Uh, you know, like you said, the artist song "One Night Tripsickery," 
sounds, I think, more contemporary to, than most songs in the show. It sounds like maybe a, a song like Arcade Fire or, you know, a song that could be written now or, you know, and then there's a lot of songs that we really paid this particular attention to detail and wanted it to sound like it could have come out of that era of music. I think we're pretty loose with our rules, but the bottom line is like our taste and what we want to hear, you know, and, and it's theater so it can be heightened and it doesn't have to be so on the nose, like all from that era with all those sounds, even though we did try to do that for a lot of it. it mm -hmm. It's like Sammy sings this song soliloquy, which is a really powerful moment in the show. And I don't necessarily think that's from that era. I feel like that could just be any, you know, time, you know, period, the last 20 years, you know. And then weirdly, it makes reference to Carousel, which had a song called Soliloquy, which we didn't know yes. when we when, when when we called it Soliloquy. Sure. And, Joshua Henry. And, and, and then it even like, like even further, like both songs are about a person trying to like, trying to, um, uh, um, the uh, uh, um, uh, sort, sort of discuss like, well, this is my life, but I also have a responsibility to a child, mm -hmm. which is the, which is oh the same God, subject matter. True. And had we had no clue until until it's after, and then I was like, oh, look at that. That's so funny. Also, the last episode of the podcast with Carousel. Joshua oh my was here. <laughs> it was all meant to be. Um, and I mean, for the two of you, I, I, it's obvious. I would think it's like super exciting to be working on a show with composers who are living and in the room. Um, <laughs> and so, but I mean, right, but right. Uh, yeah, yes. Stop. Oh, no, Please my God. don't. <laughs> <laughs> Until for the listeners now. at home, Stephen just feigned a heart attack. It was not funny. <laughs> <laughs> funny. Oh, that means that, that means I'm old. <laughs> But you're totally right. I mean, um, I'm always thirsty yeah. for something new and something fresh and something honest and something now and something here and something that reflects the times. I mean, not this is this. I mean, it's not. I mean, a period piece, but is it? I don't know. Is kind it? Of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean. Yeah, this project is a million and one dreams come yeah. true, and in every literal sense of the word, all cliches aside, it really, really is, and like. And I totally, I think it is totally of the times. Mm -hmm. It's a period piece about the late 70s, early 80s, but um, unfortunately, we still have a lot of work to do in the world. A lot of the same work we had to do back then, mm -hmm. you know? Um, there's a moment at the end of the show where you like hear some, some radio buzzes here and there about like things coming in the next year and, and how the world is changing from the 70s to the 80s. And, it was a very distinct shift in the yeah. country yeah. Uh, at that time. And we're obviously in a big shifting yeah. period of time right now. And um, I think the show's happening now because it's supposed to happen right now. There was a really cool moment that, I don't know, I'm just gonna bring this up, but like someone, something happened in the audience, like we had someone faint, so we had to like stop last the night. show. Oh my gosh, just last night, yeah. And I almost felt like at that moment, like we were all kind of looking at each other like, wow, we're really just like in this moment right now, it's just us and like in this room and like nobody else. And so like, I feel like at that point in the show, like it heightened somehow. I don't know if you felt that too. You're I'm totally like on right. a weird like it, it, spiritual it kick right now, yeah. but it was like almost like, well, um, Darko Tres, oh, sorry, sorry. No, Chuck Chesnack like brought up the other day, like during notes, he was like, 
you have to like think about it as we have this song called The Last Party and he's like you you never know these people who are like you know like living the the peak of their lives never know when it's going to be their la- you know last day on earth and at sometimes it feels like when we're on this planet right now with like the news and everything that's going on like some people don't actually know when our last day on earth is and so it's like we like had to sit with that for a moment and that was like a moment last night where I was like whoa because we didn't know if the person who had fainted was like either having a heart attack or like he was there with us or was you know what I'm saying so like yeah. there's like moments like that like kind of like push you into the presence like oh we have a responsibility to tell the story now yeah. and like we don't we might not have the chance to tell it tomorrow and on that same uh, the person was fine yes they yes yes, got yes they were medical attention they were fine <laughs> but we did hold the show for a second and i'd never experienced something like that and in that moment of like okay our the guest is fine we're gonna start again we're all just kind of like all right in our place on stage and the audience is there and that like veil between us is gone for a second and it was really crazy to feel like oh we're all in this room together Mm. experiencing the same thing and i think this show is um i don't know healing in a lot of ways yeah there's plenty to be afraid and scared Uh, about what's you know fear what's going on in the world and the show is uh, this show particularly at this time has acted like a little band-aid for all of us i think and there's a line in our show, you know, live this night as if it was your last. And Which that, was that about moment. to be Which sung. Was, yeah, yeah and, that moment yeah, last and, night and really it. <laughs> snapped it into <laughs> to place. So when the dis, when Steve Rebell signed, we fought, the, the whole first act is leading to, is like the anticipation of getting to the dance floor. And we finally get to the dance floor and that's when this happened. And, the, and when the band kicks in and the number and Steve Rebell sings, we can repent misspent time that's passed or live this night as if it was our last and I think everyone was like oh oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah carry on carry on I also had a tremendous <laughs> amount of family in the audience and I kind of freaked out oh that's a lot well the, I mean I was gonna say that it's um the, the theater that you're in is such a sort of intimate room that I would think that even when someone isn't possibly having a heart attack in the audience, there's a feeling of immediacy for all of you, whether in the band or on stage, oh, that yeah. doesn't often come in theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the songs, a lot of the direction is like downstage center, closer than I am to you right now, mm-hmm. you know, singing at them, you know, looking them in the face intentionally. It's, yeah. it's confrontational. How, how close is the, 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 the lip of the stage? The stage is seven inches high. So it's not, it's not, it's we're, like, yeah. we're barely raised. So basically, basically it's and like high heels. My spit is definitely landing on chins. Yeah. Oh my high And, and, and you could, if you're in the front row, you can't stretch your legs even and not be on the yeah, stage. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. No way. <laughs> It's like it's like it's basically where the next row would be. That's mm-hmm. where the stage goes. So if you're down, if you're all the way downstage, you're you're in, you're in the house. Yeah. And Theo is sometimes in people's laps occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I think that um, one of the things I find myself returning to talking to uh, people who have new shows is just this idea that, you know, of how the definition of what musical theater is, is changing, I think for the better to not um, be what it always traditionally has been. Um, And uh, speaking again to how immediate the show feels in this space, um, you know, I think 
I'm always interested to hear people who are behind a show talking about, is this the kind of show you would want to turn into a Broadway production? Is it not meant for that kind of context? Um, and I think sometimes, often, there are great shows that like Broadway is not the the setting for them or yeah or not even ready for it but just like you know there's there's value to a show being done in in a different way and in a different kind of space so i'm just curious to hear how you all feel about that with this ain't no disco if this doesn't go to broadway i'll jump off a building (laughs) (laughs) perhaps this one no 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 this is this is this is written for broadway we 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 like we, we like it i mean people who sit in the front row they're like I almost felt rude clapping, <laughs> like 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 I'm in I'm like clapping in their face, and I want to clap enthusiastically, but it almost feels like I'm gonna slap somebody. Like like I do feel like like our our bandmate our band members on the third level, they there's two our two tallest people are up there. If they if they moved their chair, they wouldn't fit. Like they are in the one spot that they can be and still play their instrument. Um, you know, it'd be nice, and, and the set comes out into this. I mean, we we could you could stand back a little bit and not, and and still actually feel like it's immersive. Yeah, because the set actually actually finishes, the actually the the, the the part of the set finishes over like the sixth row, on the ceiling. Like there's oh, yeah. there's those panels and they and they go mm-hmm. and and so you're you're, you're kind of in you're in the show. Yeah. yeah, um, we could you can step back. I don't like to be closer to the fifth row when I'm out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're sort of bursting out of that theater, but it seems also like a perfect place to be discovering what the show is at the Atlantic Theater. It's just a beautiful... It is a church that was converted into a theater, which is a sort of part of New York's history of buildings being repurposed. Even Studio itself used to be... Studio 54 used to be a, a TV studio, and then it got turned into a movie theater, and then it got turned into a Broadway theater, and now it's... Things are truly full circle for the yeah, show. So I was realizing I was like, now Studio Fifty Four is part of Broadway. And and our and our, and our show Studio Fifty Four and it and acts as a sort of church in itself, you know, of getting mm-hmm. you know to the other side and heaven, you know, is waiting. And I, I think the the question about would we'd love for this show to go to Broadway. We'd also love it to be a movie. We we have we have huge dreams for the show, you know. But right now we're here in the Atlantic, and it feels perfect, you know. Yeah. It's funny, we're, we're, we're their biggest show that they've done. Oh, interesting. But when we started, we were like their smallest show. Because when, huh. when we first pitched a sung through musical to Neil Pepe at the Atlantic, because he'd seen the workshop where it didn't work as a book musical, and we reconceived it as a sung through, and we pitched it to him on one snowy night in January of 2016, this, re, this rethink of the show. And he came by Peter's, Peter has this great recording studio, um, that I stay at a lot when, when, when I'm in town working. And, um, and he came over one night after work and we just pitched him our idea, sang him a little bit. And he said, okay, let's do something together. We're halfway through the season, so we have no money, but we can give you a week in our basement. <laughs> and, that, and so we started at the smallest scale and, then, and, then, and we'll give you some support and then people kept on giving us personnel support and then they'd say we can make some photocopies for you but just don't tell anybody and then people kept sneaking photocopies for us until finally they're like we're, we're getting reports we're making too many photocopies for you like they had no <laughs> money for us at all but um, so we just saved but it was so we went from being from being literally just you can camp out in our basement for a bit to being their biggest production ever how a revolution starts in the basement in in two years yeah (laughs) 
We're really, really lucky to be at the Atlantic right now. I think everybody, um, I mean, I know I can definitely go ahead and speak for everybody in the cast in this regard that we really, really love this work and it feels really special and really um, safe. It feels like a safe place for all of us to be and it feels like we're doing something important. And I know we would love for the show to have a life beyond this and it will, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's, it's presumptuous to know or to presume to know what that's going to look like. But I think this is just the beginning for this story. This Ain't No Disco is playing at the Atlantic Theatre Company through August 12th. If you're a fan of Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe on iTunes. Please give us lots of stars and nice reviews if you feel so inclined. If you would like to find me on social media, my Twitter is at Rebecca Millsoff. My Instagram is at YaDownWithRMM. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to send your thoughts about the podcast into the atmosphere. And hope to have you back next week.